When we look at the world, we tend to categorize the world in terms of cities and towns and countryside and mountains, oceans. And when we look at people, we also do the same sort of thing. We categorize them, rightly or wrongly, according to race, into intelligence, into stature, into weight, attractiveness. Of late, I've even thought about this. We tend to look at uh, those who are from New York as a category, those from here in Wayne County as a category. Redneck is a category. But the ancient world also had distinctions. And I'd like to dwell and think about that as we consider the text we're about to consider this morning that uh, in the Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, gave categories. Moses, writing dictates from the Lord, said, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. As you can see, there are four distinct categories there. Um, they're kind of like a building block of, of everything in the spiritual universe, but there is application to the physical universe as well. And uh, you'll find yourself in everything in one of these categories, and they're also somewhat ranked as well. Um, let's uh, think about going into Sally's, into Salvation Army thrift store, and you're looking for a bowl, okay? You're probably not going to find a bowl that is dedicated and set apart to the use of the uh, White House, something with the presidential seal because it's, if you will, it's set apart. And that is a good illustration of the idea of holiness, of being set apart for a particular special use. And in the Old Testament, specifically, the use of the worship of a holy God. Now, thinking about pottery and thinking about uh, uh, Salvation Army, there are lots of bowls, very unique bowls, uh, but uh, maybe not, you know, they're common. You go in and you look and you see some that, oh, I remember that set back when I was uh, young. My mom used to use that set, right? It was common, but now they're not unique. But I would think that most of the bowls at Salvation Army would be maybe common, but also clean. Uh, I would hope that they're clean if they're sitting on the shelf there, right? But a bowl that is unclean is something that you probably would have a guttural reaction against, and you might actually say that really should just be tossed out because of how it was used. Um, I'm not going to descend and use your imagination, if you will, on what kinds of unclean bowls there would be. But notice the distinction between clean and unclean can create a sense of shame. To label something as unclean and to say, yeah, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't really want that in my house, there's a, there's a dividing line of of shame or that which is more honorable in use. Clean is acceptable. 
unclean is defiled, clean is normal, unclean is abnormal. The clean can't cleanse something that's unclean. If I have two dishes side by side and I've got one that's got something really nasty on it, it's not going to clean the other dish. You're going to have contamination that occurs. And so, in this way, the world is divided into clean and unclean. And if you're unclean, then something is wrong with you. You don't fit in. You're not like the other people. You stick out and, you know, you're liable. You're probably going to get kicked out. There's a sense of weight and shame. It's a very powerful psychological experience that people feel. Now, shame is an appropriate response to God's holy word when we fail to keep his word. And we ought to feel a sense of shame when we look at others with lust. We should feel shame when we become enraged with anger and we, we hurt other people with our words. We should feel shame. And knowing God's word and his moral expectation for us, it ought to trigger within ourselves a sense of shame when we sin. Now, our world tends to try to erase shame, and it does so wrongly. For example, our secular accommodation of sexual sins causes Christians to be caught in a dilemma. Because Christians, on the one hand, affirm God's holy law, which condemns sexual deviant activity, and yet, on the other hand, we want to communicate gospel grace that there can be forgiveness for sins. That makes things difficult, and so the world tries to erase shame wrongly by saying that God's law doesn't matter. It's not something that's even relevant. And the answer is not actually to erase God's moral law. We've learned already in the miracles that we have looked at that Jesus has authority to forgive sin. And when He forgives sin, He cancels it, and it's buried underneath the deepest sea. That is the right way to deal with shame. If Jesus mercifully can make the clean the unclean that is clean, then all sinners ought to be free from condemnation. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And in this sermon, I intend to point out ways that we as Christians have at times unnecessarily contributed to a culture of condemnation within the church. Sinners will sin, but yet Jesus powerfully cancels sins. His blood and His Word has the authority to right wrongs 
and to cleanse. So let's look at this text. We're going to look at Matthew 9, and we're going to see two moments of controversy in which Jesus addresses the tendency to try to keep up shame. And so, let's look at this text. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 9, we read, As Jesus passed on from there, He had just healed the paralytic and claimed the ability to forgive sins. And as Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn? as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. It is the the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. In this text, I want us to see that Jesus' mercy, united with faith, erases shame. Jesus' mercy, united with faith, erases shame. We have observed Jesus creating wholeness and including people through the last series of miracles. The first miracles that we saw when Jesus came down from the mount, the sermon that he gave there on that mountain, he healed a leper, someone that would not typically be included. He healed a Gentile, Gentile servant. And then he healed a woman who was not allowed into the inner areas of worship. And then he has a, there's a buffer in which, which then he, he kind of deals with what does it mean then to follow Christ in light of follow him in light of his teaching and the nature of following him, moving towards and closer to him. And then we have a series of miracles in which he creates wholeness. He, he, he heals, if you will, nature that is raging. He heals that which is supernatural, the demonic world. And then he heals that which is spiritual, a man who is caught in sin. And then he has this, there's like another little buffer here where where he deals with the nature of what it means to be whole. If your sins have been forgiven, 
And Jesus' behavior was causing people who lived in a shame-honor-based world a lot of confusion. You see, on the one hand, Jesus taught with authority, but he also embraced unclean people. Was Jesus then also unclean because he brought unclean people into association with him? Was Jesus really holy as he claimed? Or is he just common? And opposition to Jesus begins to build, and Jesus creates a little chaos with his words, and the honorable class, the Pharisees, the honorable class, the elite, were questioning whether Jesus really had the authority to forgive sins and thus make himself dishonorable by committing blasphemy. People have to make a decision for or against Jesus. Is he common or is he holy? Does Jesus have the authority to erase shame? And I contend that Jesus' mercy united with faith, in fact, does erase shame that we experience. And in these two controversial moments, Jesus frees unclean people from separation, and he also dismantles systems designed to maintain shame. And we're going to work through these texts. We're going to see how Jesus addresses this, these areas. And the first controversy, Jesus' forgiveness frees Matthew and all who call upon him from separation. We're going to look first at the miracle. What? A miracle? Yes, there is a miracle here. Matthew is invited into relationship with the premier rabbi in Israel. The crowds are coming to him and looking to him. And Matthew appropriately puts his own personal call right here. And I want us to note that it is a lot like how Jesus called the fishermen. Let's read that verse again, verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It says Jesus passed along that way. It was like this was like walking along the side of the lake, and he happens to see these fishermen fishing, and he sees them, and he recognizes I need to call them into following me. And this is beautiful. In fact, uh, it's, it's a great illustration of how we are to carry out the Great Commission as we are going along in life. While we're in the workplace, while we are in play, when we interact with people in community, we call them to look to Jesus. Jesus is out and about, if you will. Jesus is making disciples as he's going along. And notice, too, that Matthew's calling, 
here, if Matthew is in Capernaum, as the narration seems to imply, Capernaum, then it was a very provocative call. Very provocative, because just a little while ago, in, in the earlier chapter, in chapter 8, there was a scribe who was in that area of Capernaum, standing on the seashore, asking to get into the boat to follow Jesus. He said, look, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'm your man, Jesus. I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to go wherever you want. You need me, Jesus. Think about how these words would sound to that scribe if he were there in the audience listening. Matthew is culturally radioactive. Matthew lived with shame. He was a publican. He was an amoral social climber who, who used the backs of his own people to advance himself. We, we, we love politicians who do that to us, don't we? And Rome's strategy of taxation was built upon the corruption of the people that they conquered. To the highest bidder came the charter to tax. They were scumbags. Matthew had probably already come to terms with this, and he probably tried to block out the shame that he would be feeling. But now the calling of Matthew is designed here to teach us that none of us are called based upon our own merits, but on the generosity of Jesus alone. God is merciful to whom He will show mercy. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, converted slave trader, said these words, If I ever reach heaven, I, expi I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some that I thought to meet there. And the third, the greatest wonder of all, is to find myself there. It is a miracle when we come to faith. When we come into relationship and respond to His calling. There is a mercy in Matthew's call, verses 10 and 12, we see, and Jesus reclining at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? A tax collector would be responsible for a large area of jurisdiction. Around Capernaum, there was fishing at the lake, there were trade routes, there was stations where they would have to, you, you can't go by without paying your toll. A tax collector would have a whole staff working for him, and it says here in verse 10 that many tax collectors were eating with Jesus. Now, you might remember another tax collector in the Scriptures, the man by the name of Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man, right? And uh, he was a tax collector in the jurisdiction of Jericho to the south. Now, like Zacchaeus, 
Matthew also introduced his network to Jesus. You know what this tells us? That mercy begets mercy. And that those who have experienced mercy towards them will want others to experience mercy. If you have found that Jesus has been merciful to you, then you can introduce others to the mercy of God. And Matthew and Zacchaeus' encouragement is to us that we would bring others to meet Jesus or the friends of Jesus, us Christians. I've been really encouraged that some of our Six at Six groups have been involving others outside who may not have faith yet in Christ and getting them connected to Christians. I think that's a wonderful thing. It was a wonderful experience at our um, 4th of July celebration um, to, to, to have a venue in which people would come and meet others. What a beautiful thing. We ought to be also thinking about bringing people to mom to mom and VBS and worship services. If you have found Jesus to be merciful, bring others to hear the word so that they might experience the same mercy. In verse 11, we have the response of observation. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus' presence here with these notorious turncoats, these people who betrayed, you know, Israel. How could Jesus spend time with these people? The conclusion might be that Jesus is not a serious teacher because separation from immoral elements seems required throughout the Word of God. I mean, everywhere in the Bible you turn, you, you, you see this contrast between light and dark, and, and, and there's this encouragement to, to separate yourselves from that which is inappropriate. Psalm 1-1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That scripture definitely encourages caution. Be careful not to get ensnared in the thoughts, the ways, the attitudes of the world, of sinners. But it does not tell us to avoid sinners. Jesus is a lot like a doctor who, who goes to the sick. I mean, that's the analogy that he, he brings up. Jesus is not saying, though, that if you have a weak immune system, if you are spiritually weak, if you are newer in the faith, that you don't be careful about the kinds of places that you would go. There are definitely places that Christians ought not to go. Dens of iniquity, iniquity where people go to those places for the express purpose of rejoicing in sin. That's not appropriate for Christians to go there. What Jesus is saying, though, is that mature believers should be able to engage with sinners to rescue them, to help them to find the truth. A strong lifeguard knows how to rescue a drowning swimmer without being drowned themselves. Jesus goes to the weak, and he rescues them. But Jesus goes a step further. And so should we. As a community of forgiven sinners. And I want us to notice the mending that occurs in, Jesus, in, in Matthew's call in verse 13. There's a mending like um, a garment being fixed, that which was torn apart. 
verse 13, we read these words. Jesus uh, tells those who are asking, go and learn what this means. Like, go, go have a Bible study. Go home and figure this out, and then you come back and talk to me about this. And he says, quoting Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Hosea was a prophet who was alive during a very dark phase of Israel's history. Very dark. The expectation of Babylon removing them from the land and taking them away was right there on the doorstep. They were in the process of being destroyed by a world power, and this because of a spiritual adultery. They weren't faithful to, to God. They were flirting with other false idols and living immoral, immoral lives. Sin cannot go unpunished forever, but Hosea learned that God is merciful to those who humble themselves and turn from sins. And to illustrate this truth, Hosea was told to go and marry a prostitute, a person who was clearly unclean. And Hosea's uh, wife, then, now a former prostitute, runs away, and she gets captured by some traffickers, and she is enslaved, and she is, forgive the word, she is pimped out as an enslaved, trafficked woman. And Hosea goes down, and he finds her and rescues her and brings her home. And the allegory is designed to point out God's mercy and his intention to redeem Israel from her international oppressors. Babylon was going to take them and traffic them, if you will, in Babylon, but God was going to faithfully come and redeem them and make them whole again. That was the analogy, but there was actually more in Hosea. The story also describes a period of redemption of people that was coming, people who, who would be traditionally considered unclean, people outside of Israel. God would one day come to show mercy to people who are not God's people. In the book of Hosea, that truth is explored. And why Jesus asks them to go have a Bible study on this is because Jesus himself saw himself as the one coming to redeem unclean people who had prostituted themselves with the world. People like Matthew, people like Mary Magdalene, people who need mercy, people like me, people like you. Why would God desire mercy and not sacrifice? Are these mutually exclusive? See, making sacrifices in the temple could be pointless if people are not being redeemed in the process. See, there's a message for us in Matthew's call. Jesus saw himself as the one who came to seek and to save the lost. He was that Hosea going to redeem his prostituted bride. 
And the way of Jesus, he comes seeking to heal and help those who are morally, physically, and spiritually unclean. It's appropriate to advocate for truth about sexuality. It is appropriate to advocate for life and marriage, but we still have to be going to the lost. We have to be accepting and restoring people who repent and turn from sin. So no amount of sacrifice for sin can atone except for the blood of Jesus Christ. And why do I say that? Because someone who has had a formerly unclean track record, if we hold them off indefinitely, what we are communicating is that they have to atone and make amends, and we actually put down the blood of Jesus Christ to do that. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to atone and to erase all shame. Do we believe it? If we downplay the power of the gospel to make clean what is, was formerly unclean, we can create a culture of condemnation like that of the scribe and the Pharisee. Shame is a feeling of being unclean, of being exposed, of being outside. And shame leads to fear, leads to anxiety. But gospel grace leads to liberty. There ought not to be shame in the church for those whose sins are forgiven. Because shame is a very heavy burden. A heavy, heavy burden. But forgiveness can erase it. For example, when people divorce wrongly, terminate a pregnancy wrongly, desire intimacy wrongly, pursue money wrongly, and if these people who have pursued these ends wrongly are forgiven by Christ, then the church needs to make sure that our practices and policy does not communicate that they are still unclean. I've been very encouraged that our board has been taking time to think carefully about the topic of divorce and remarriage. About 40 years ago, the tabernacle introduced a policy which has not always been a part of our 80-year heritage. And we did it, I think, with good intention to communicate a strong position about marriage. And while that desire is good, the policy, though, has contributed to an environment in which forgiven people have felt unnecessary shame. Jesus desires mercy when his blood has paid it all. And Jesus' mercy mends those who have been torn apart by the sin at the root of divorce. Jesus is also merciful to those who did not want to be divorced. Does it strike you that Jesus does not shy away from controversy? <laughs> There's two controversies here. He could have said, well, you know, we're not going to talk about these things. Uh, come back later and we'll, we'll kind of 
deal with it over here. No, Jesus, Jesus took the time to refute error. And it's not always loving to avoid controversy. There is a time to speak. There is a time to refrain from speaking. And wisdom knows the difference. I believe we're in a healthy place at the tabernacle. And over the past year, we have had wonderful, constructive conversation about this issue. And I would like to say God be praised. That is a wonderful thing. And I'd like us to recognize that in this, Jesus is making a very bold claim about his capacity to forgive sin, to declare those who are unclean, clean. There's a second controversy here, and I'm going to pick up my pace just a little bit here, in which Jesus frees us from systems of shame. Systems of shame. This is kind of like a double-barrel shotgun, okay? Both the Pharisees and John the Baptist were part of renewal movements, and uh, they created systems to encourage a greater degree of faithfulness in those who listen to their teaching, more than what Scripture actually required. And so I want us to see, um, picking up in verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then will they fast? No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. John's disciples were confused. Why don't Jesus' disciples fast as often as, you know, what John has told us or what the Pharisees practice? It's very possible that Jesus detects, and I think rightly so, detects some pride Pride divides and creates systems of comparison, creates a system of that which is clean and that which is unclean or cleaner. This is middle ground of cleaner or higher ground. See, when people turn from sin and they repent and they publicly profess through baptism, they're inside. While we're all on a spectrum of maturity, there ought not, though, be systems that are created which emphasize pride of position and shame because you've not attained where others are on the spectrum. And Jesus here emphasizes that his own presence is that which is of first importance. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day is going to come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. How strange it would be if uh, it was required for disciples to 
fast when a friend is with them. No, 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 they fast when, when, when they're gone. They're kind of like disappointed when that friend has left and that, that presence is no longer felt. Few things were more happy in Israel than a wedding feast, a week-long feast, like a vacation. Like when you go to vacation, you want to experience that which you don't typically experience. You want the best food, the best of everything, the best experiences to kind of take your mind off of the normal routine. Like it's, a Jewish wedding is a joyful, joyful place. Now, Jesus is saying it would be absolutely unnatural. It would be rude for them now to fast because I'm here. Like, I'm the, I'm the one who is expected to come. I'm the Messiah. And Jesus, though, predicts that there's going to be a day, though, that when he's forcibly taken away, he's going to be killed. His disciples are going to be sad, and they will instinctively fast. They won't want to eat. And I don't believe that Jesus is saying in this that there's a requirement that Christians fast, per se. But Christians can fast, and at times we should fast because the world has distracted us from our first love, our friend, our Savior. It's not required, though, that we do so systematically, like the Pharisees fasted twice a week on specific days. The presence of Christ is more important than the system that's used to assist you in the process of keeping your eyes on Christ. And this last illustration, there's, a, there's another little illustration here about the wineskins, and it's designed to highlight the distance that the old system has and how it's not compatible with the new life-giving Holy Spirit that's going to come. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what brings us real freedom. We're not enslaved to a system that's designed to, to shame because, oh, you don't, you don't fast like I fast? Okay. Well, when you get there, then we'll have a conversation. No, no, no. It's not what the kingdom, that's not what the church or anything is, is designed to be. It's supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and love. Jesus had a naturalness to him that disposed him to eat with almost anyone and be willing to eat almost anything. Can such a person be a credible teacher? Abstinence generally has the appearance of wisdom. And at times, abstinence may be wise, but abstinence on its own does not save a person from hellfire. A person who abstains with pride, like the disciples of John, are participating in a system of shame. Paul and Colossians also rebuked people who placed such an emphasis on what they ate as whether it was clean or unclean and you can touch this, eat that, not that. These kinds of actions appear to be wisdom, but they serve in the end to create a self-made religion that is of no value of stopping the works of the flesh. Colossians 2, 21 to 23. Jesus' teaching brings the liberation by the Holy Spirit. 
The old system is like brittle leather. You can't put the joy of a new system into brittle leather. It's going to burst. And I believe that Paul is referring to this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, Jesus saves people radically from all different places, different relationships, different jobs, different walks of life, and it's, we're grafted into a new community of faith. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul, reflecting, says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. It means cleaned. You were made clean. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a beautiful truth. Praise God for the cleansing work of the blood. God mercifully saves all of us. Each person, though, may have different discipleship needs. Not everyone needs to fast. Disciples are free to have different disciplines as directed by the Word and also of the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit provides freedom to live with others in a loving way within a church family. For example, each family may choose differently an approach to the use or the non-use of wine and still be accepted in the body of Christ and to be accepted by one another. The Scriptures do give guidance, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The kingdom of God is, neither, is not the matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling within teaches us that we are accepted by our Heavenly Father and we are to live without shame, we may have different discipline needs, but we need to make sure that we do not create a system of shame by our own discipline path. Jesus' mercy, united with faith, erases shame. We have to be, as followers of Christ, being careful that we are participating in a culture of honor for one another and not to dishonor one another because of discipleship plans that we have adopted for ourselves or for our families. And if Jesus says that we are forgiven, then this means that we are free, we're free indeed. We are free from unnecessary separation or systems that create shame. Jesus said to the leper, be clean. You know, clean is the opposite of unclean. 
When you're clean, you feel normal again. I mean, this time of year with the humidity as thick as it is, you just even walk out the door to do something in your yard and you're drenching, disgusting, you feel gross. But when you feel clean, you've been, you've had a shower, you feel, you feel good, right? Clean is shalom, it's peace. Everything is right, everything is the way it ought to be. What is the way out of shame? Well, it's taking what you know to be true about the mercy of Christ, his forgiveness, and believing it, uniting it with faith. That erases the shame that you feel inside. And then you can go out into the world and not shame others. You can honor others and love them as you have been loved. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And knowledge of this truth leads to belief. And belief leads to trust. And trust in Jesus means we trust what he says. We trust his promises. And if Jesus mercifully forgives the morally untouchable, then all kinds of sinners are now made free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time in the Word this morning. I pray that we would all be um, able to hear and to receive, and that those who have ears to hear would hear. And I pray, Father, that you would allow us all to, to honor you in your Word, to live to glorify you and not our own selves. And we ask for your guidance and leading through your Holy Spirit as we seek to be faithful until your return. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to close our service by singing uh, together, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. Let's stand as we sing.